theyeshiva.net. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. This Monday morning, January 24th, 2022. Parshas Meshpatim, Chav Beis Shvat, the 22nd day of Shvat, Tavshin Pei Beis 5782. Today's class is dedicated by the Berkowitz family, Le'elu Nishmas Menachem Mendel Ben Mardechai Tzvi, whose yard site was Yud Ches Shvat, Tehei Nishmasai Hayekara Tzruda, and to remain an eternal source of light and blessing and inspiration to the entire family, to all of us, and to all of the Jewish people. And thank you so much for your dedication and your generosity and your friendship and your love in general. I also want to mention today is the yard site of the Rebetzin, of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, HaRabonis HaTzitkanis Moros Chaya Mushka, Bas Kvoit Kedushas Admur Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, Rebetzin Chaya Mushka Shneerson, who passed away on Chav Beis Shvat, Tovshin Mem Ches, 1988. So we started last week, the Maimir of the Balatanya of the Alter Rebbe, in Torah Er Parshas Yisroi. And let's remember that the story of Matan Torah, the story of the giving of the Torah, spans over two portions. The beginning of it is in Yisrael, and then it continues at the end of Parshas Mishpatim, where the narrative of Sinai continues. So this Maimer began on the verse, on the Pasuk, The entire nation observed the sounds, the thunder, the lightning, the fires, and the sound of the shofar. And the Maimer developed the question, why was the Shofar necessary at Matan Torah? He went into the whole story about the Avaida, the work of Avram Avinu, Haloich how Avaida's Hashem serving Hashem consists of the rhythm of life. The rhythm of life is comprised of two antithetical motions and experiences. One is called Ratzai, which is longing, running, yearning, aspiring, and then there is Shoiv, which is returning, there's tension and resolution. Every niggin, every powerful melody has that combination of tension and resolution, trying to escape, transcend, going above myself, yearning for something deeper, and then and then embracing what is Ratzai and Shoiv Halech Vanasaya. And that was explained at length. And from there, the Alter Rebbe discussed how Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, concretized that experience within every mitzvah and within all of Torah, which is always a synthesis of fire and water. Fire representing ratzai, longing, yearning, fire ascending, and water representing shoiv, returning, water descending. Explained at length the words of Rabbi Akiva to his colleagues when they went into the orchard. Don't say water, water, al taimru mayim mayim, that there's two waters. It's only one water as explained at length. But Torah mitzvahs also have the element of fire, miminoi esh das lamai. There is the synthesis of fire and water, which is the concrete manifestation of ratzoi and shuv. And today, when a Jew does a mitzvah, when a Jew learns Torah, when a Jew lives Yiddishkeit, it gives that the soul, that experience, it puts the soul in rhythm, in sync 
with the heartbeat of the cosmos and with the heartbeat of reality, which is Ratzi Veshaiv. And he left off with the question, so why wasn't Moshe Rabbeinu, why wasn't Avram Avinu given the Torah? Why did the Torah have to remain at those days only a spiritual experience? Why was it not given to him physically as well? And that's where we're holding, and we're now going to continue. We are up to page 147. If you open the source sheets on the yeshiva.net, or in the Zoom, you also have them. It's Ayin Dalit, column 1, the second paragraph, or page 47, the first column, the second paragraph. Ula Havinza. Ula Havinza, to understand this, Tzorich lahakdim biyur hatam, sheyesh hakayich hagadul hazeh b'mitzvahs. Lies al yadam dafke, hamshach haserein seif barachum. In order to understand all of this, we need to give another introduction to explain the reason that mitzvahs have this incredible koyach, this incredible power and capacity. He uses this expression, hakoyach hagadol hazeh, this tremendous power, this, that through them, and precisely through them, only through them, can you access the light of infinity? As he said earlier in the Maimer, that what was the chidush, what was the great novelty of the giving of the Torah? That the word mitzvah, that was the expression earlier in the previous paragraph, that the name, the title mitzvah, can be conferred on physical matter. In other words, that through physical activities with physical material matter, the body, the human body, and the various physical objects in the world, we access the light of infinity. As he said, that was the, the, the great chiddush of Matan To understand this, what's the question? All of the mitzvahs are basically performed from either doimim, Daimim is inorganic matter. Daimim actually means silent. That part of our planet which seems lifeless, it seems lifeless, it's not really lifeless, but daimim. Daimim would be anything like water, earth, rock. Tzimeyach, the world of botany, the vegetative world. Or chai, or animals, carbon. You have an, an offering which comes from minchasoilus. It was a meal offering that came from flour. Obviously, that comes mitzameach. Flour is when you use the, usually it was wheat sometimes. It was barley, but most offerings were made of wheat. And you extract the kernels, you grind the kernels into flour. And that flour was usually mixed with oil, and it was brought as an offering that was burnt on the altar. So where does this carbon come from? It comes mitzameach. It comes from that which grows. It comes from grain. Then you have carbonus behemoth. Then you have offerings that weren't meal offerings. They were animal offerings. There were five species of animals, five species that were allowed to be brought as offerings, only five. In other words, even among kosher animals, you can only bring five, which are sheep, goats, cattle, a cow or an ox, turtle doves, and pigeon birds. But that comes from the world of chai, the world of living organisms, but animals, the world of mammals or birds. Then you have tefillin. Tefillin comes shall cloth. It comes from parchment. May oir behema. 
which is from the hide, from the skin of an animal, chuli, etc., etc. So you have mitzvahs. He's just giving three examples, but you can bring many examples. If you're giving tzedakah, you're giving charity, you're using a check, or you're using a currency, or using a dollar bill, or whatever it is that you're using, you're taking something from daimim. And the same is true with every single mitzvah, whether it's lighting a Hanukkah candle, or reading a Megillah, or sending Shalach Manas on Purim, or eating matzah on Passover. So matzah comes from what? Matzah, again, comes from grain. Blowing shoifer, you take a ram's horn. But every single mitzvah, whether it's tzitzis, which comes from wool, which again comes from an animal. Every single mitzvah, the same is true with mezuzah. For this, you need a physical door. <laughs> Without a door, you don't have the mitzvah of mezuzah. And again, you need physical parchment that's placed in a case and that's placed on the door. All of these elements, as is explained in Tanya at length, in chapter 7 and chapter 37, were under the rule of what we call klipas naiga. Klipas naiga, just very very generally, because that's not our main focus, means a translucent shell. Physicality eclipses the divine energy that's contained in it, but some physicality has a very thin husk. It's a transparent husk. And therefore you can reveal the godliness of it, the godly purpose of it. That's called klipas naiga. How is it that each one of these mitzvahs, which apparently they're just mitzvahs that are done with very mundane, mundane reality, and they literally become the channel for infinity. It seems like a great paradox. He says, for example, Karbonus. These offerings, it becomes a fire. The Torah says, Ishe, a fire. Reach nichayach l'ashem. A pleasing aroma for God. Something is so pleasing. You took this flower and you offered it on the altar and it's so pleasing. It's so special. Doesn't obviously mean it's a pleasing aroma. It's a good smell physically. Reach nichayach l'ashem. God finds it pleasing. And he focuses on the two words, Reach nichayach. Reach which means smell, aroma, odor, represents an ascent from below to a higher place. That's what reyach is. When somebody experiences a smell, it stimulates you. It's a stimuli that is experienced by your nose, interpreted by your brain, and it creates a certain sensation, a certain feeling. Those of you who smell know exactly what that is. So it's something that comes from momata, from outside of you, and it triggers you, it arouses something in you. Nichayach, what's reach nichayach? That's the expression in the Torah throughout. When the Torah speaks about offerings, it's reach nichayach. What is reach nichayach? So he says, reach is the stimuli that comes from outside. Nichayach is lashen targum nachas. The word nichayach, in Aramaic translation, it represents nachas. Nachas means going downward. In, in, in Aramaic, nachas, he went down. Nachas is to go down. And now, by the way... <laughs> You know, we have a term for nachas. <laughs> you should have nachas, right? What does nachas mean? You ever thought about it? So we translate nachas from the word noyach, right? Nachas, pleasure. Nachas, it should be easy. But nachas means something else. The, the Alter Rebbe says here the word nachas means going down. You know what I'm talking about? Real nachas means you have to be able to connect to your child. And that's how you have nachas. Sometimes people are waiting for their children to give them nachas. They don't want to tune in to where their child is. So this is something very special. Lashen targum nachas lamata. I have to go out of my own ego and my own comfort zone and really connect 
to where that child is, where that person is, and you'll find a lot of nachas. You can't always wait for it to come to you. You have to be able to find it. And for to be able to find it, I have to go out of my own bubble, even if that bubble is very elegant and well-developed over many years, 40, 50, 60 years, and tune into the other. So that's what nachas means, nachas, to go down. And the Alter Rebbe says, nichoyach, in Aramaic translation, is that concept of, nichoyach is a Hebrew word, but it's also an Aramaic word that means nun ches is to travel downward. That is It's a descent from a higher space to a lower place. Pirush, what's reich nechayech lahashem? Pirush liyo is gilui havaya v'hamshachas erin seif baruchu ba'almedez galia. It's a manifestation of infinity of Hashem's presence in the revealed concrete world that we live in. Shaydeh hakarbonus nimshach gilui erin seif baruchu lamata. Each offering brought a revelation of the light of infinity down below in this world. So the Alter Rebbe says when the Torah says reich nechayech, it represents two things. Reach is the stimuli that comes from below. It's like something triggers something something inside of me because of a stimuli that came from outside. And nichayach is the opposite. Nichayach is what I give back, what I reciprocate, that which comes from within me out towards the other. Me descending from my own space and connecting to you. So the carbon created that reach nichayach. It triggered something, so to speak, in Ein Saif, which causes nichayach, that the Ein Saif infinity should come out and manifest itself in this world. And the question is, how can a little flower that comes from barley or comes from wheat have such a power to be able to trigger and arouse, not just a nice physical smell, but reach nichayach l'Hashem, where did the physical flower get this power? And Alter Rebbe continues, or let's take the examples of the mitzvah of tefillin or tzitzis. A Jew wraps tefillin. A Jew encompasses himself within a tzatzitalis, or put on tzitzis. This, this also communicates, it accesses the light of infinity, blessed be he, on his soul. Here again, what's the tefillin made out of? It's boxes that are made out of leather, which comes from the height of the animal. Or tzitzis, as I said before, the wool that comes from a sheep, or the cotton, whatever fabric he uses for his tzitzis. And on this we make a blessing, Asher Kedeshanu, as he said before, every mitzvah is Kedeshanu. Kedeshanu. What means Kedeshanu? The Rebbe said in the earlier paragraph, a few lines earlier, that through the mitzvahs, you have Kedesh that which is, completely aloof and infinite to be able to be manifested in my life. Um, how does it have that ability? Says The answer is based on what is known. When it says known, it means this is a fundamental idea in Jewish mysticism, in the works of Kabbalah and in the works of Machshav and Chzidiz. He's referencing here an idea that the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, discusses in quite a few Maimarim. We have also learned it quite a few times in our Maimarim. First time we learned it in one of the first Maimarim we learned together here in Monsi, Sheshis Yamim, Toichel Matzas, Lakutatari, Parshish, Tzava, Pesach Maimar, 
about the significance of eating matzah. The point is as follows. The life force that vivifies and is invested in doimim, in inanimate matter, in semeach, in everything that grows, whether it's vegetables, whether it's legumes, whether it's grain, whether it's fruits, and chai, the energy that's invested in animals, there is a paradox here. On one hand, it all the human being is considered the crown jewel of creation, and we elevate the entire world. But the fact is, as he will say soon, Hashem made us need all these things. We cannot live without the earth. We can't live without vegetation. We can't live without the contribution of the animal. Whether we use the animal for all the purposes they used to use animals in the days of yore, or you eat the animal, even if you don't eat the animal, you eat vegetation which comes from the earth. You need the water, you need the sun of the light, the photosynthesis. So it's not just we're the crown jewel of creation. We need all of these things. There's no, everyone gives and everyone takes. We give, but we also receive as much as we give. In the food web, in the food chain with which our planet operates, in the delicate balance of the ecosystem, everyone is a mashpia and everyone is a makabal. Everyone gives and everybody receives. That's why, this is a very important idea, the Lubavitch Rebbe would often write letters to people who were very confused and would ask a lot of questions. In the early years, the 50s or 60s or 70s, and he always brought out this point. It's a very, very, for me, it was such an always inspiring point when I read it, the English letters, that to be part of the rhythm of life, forget about humans a moment, just look at the rest of life. You know, go to a rainforest, go to any part of the world where just there's a lot of life happening, and you'll see to be part of the rhythm of life, you give and you take. Everybody takes and everybody gives. There's not a worm in the world that doesn't give as much as it takes. Everyone contributes and everyone has their part. Lightning contributes and rain contributes and the clouds contributes and the ecosystem contributes and the oceans and the ponds and the lakes and the rivers and the canals and the rainstorms and the thunders. Every every element, a worm toils the earth and plows it and makes it ultimately fertile. Every component, there's not an insect, there's not a mammal, there's not a fish, there's not a bird that doesn't make its contribution to the ecosystem, to the planet, to support and propagate and continue life. And the Rebbe once wrote to a person, you think you're the only exception. (laughs) You think you're the only exception. You're out of the system. We're all part of it because we're all part of this inclusivity, part of this oneness. So everything has a divine purpose, everything. You look at the world, you have to be able to see that oneness. But he says you have to understand that it goes even deeper. The life force that's involved, that's invested in doimim, inorganic matter, and organic matter, whether the vegetative world or the animal world, it has a source that in some respects is deeper than the energy that comes into a person. And this is the expression he uses, lifnei meloich melech. The Torah says at the end of Parshas by Yishlach, These are the kings that ruled in the land of Edom before there was a king for the Jewish people. So it's talking about the kings that came from the lineage, from the genealogy of the family of Esav, and that Esav's family produced royalty and aristocracy, kings, even before Jews had a king, because the first Jewish king was... Saul, King Saul, Saul Amalek, much later. These are the kings that come before. 
But in Kabbalah, in the writings of the Arizal, it's also seen as a spiritual metaphor. There's the kings of Esau that rule before the Jews ever ruled. They have a malucha, they have a royalty that precedes the Jewish people. And what does that mean, spiritually speaking? That there is the vitality that comes from Eloich Melech, from the energy, Lifnei Eloich Melech Lebnei Yisrael. That's higher from the energy that comes into humans and comes into Bnei Yisrael. Okamay Shekasov, as the verse says in Tehillim, Ocher Vekedem Tzartani, Dovod HaMelech says, you have created me both at the end and the beginning. Ocher Vekedem literally means you created me both with a back and a face, but it also means Ocher, I'm at the end, and Kedem at the beginning. So the Gemara says in Brachas, Samach Aleph, Talmud Brachas, page 61. I was the end of creation. Adam was created on the sixth day after everything else. In the ten utterances with which God creates and sustains the universe, as the Mishnah says in Ethics of the Fathers, chapter 5, that God created the world through ten utterances. And if you read Genesis... Everything is created through God's words, right? God says, let there be light, and there was light. God says, let there be a firmament that separates the water, and now the water gets separated. And then God says, let the water retreat into certain locations and let dry land emerge, and that's what happens. And God says, let earth begin to blossom and produce vegetation. And so there are the utterances which ultimately form the universe and the planet. What's the last one? The last one is, Vayoymer Elikim, Nasa Adam. Let's make Adam in our image. That's the last one. So he's Achar. Achar. That's what David Amalek says in Tehillim, chapter 139. On one level, I'm at the back, I'm at the end. Way end. The utterance, let earth produce vegetation, or let earth produce nefesh chaya, every living mammal. This comes before the human being. As the Gemara says, sometimes we can look at a person and say, Yitush Kadmach, even a mosquito has come before you. Why? Because all of the other utterances, the other levels of divine energy, which formed everything else in the planet outside of human being, preceded the person. We came all the way at the end. Now you would think it should be the other way around. Person comes first, person is the crown jewel of creation. God tells Adam and Chava, you rule over the planet. You conquer the planet. Everything is here for your service. You protect it, and you elevate it, and you sublimate it. The answer is because there's an element in everything else that has something that is divinely more deep than even the human life. And that's why Hashem made the system that we need food for our fuel. The living organism of a person, combination of body and soul, it needs the food. I need the earth. I need the water. I need the vegetation. I need those vegetables. I need that kale. I need that spinach. And there's a symbiotic relationship. It needs me, but I need it. So even though the human being, you would think, is essentially a spiritual creature, a divine entity transcending vegetation, transcending the animal kingdom. But the fact is, if I don't have those grains, if I don't have those legumes, those vegetables, those fruits, I can't live. I need to be able to replenish my body on a daily basis or at least every few days with the food. And now here's a question. If human life is really 
the divine energy that gives life to the body. We don't think about this. We take it for granted. Why is the system created that we have to eat and we have to drink? (laughs) And as we know, it takes up a major part of our life, right? (laughs) Imagine life without food. What would Jewish life look like in a barren? What would Jewish life look like without food? (laughs) I'm not just talking about without the Kiddush. (laughs) Without food, even at home. (laughs) Forget the Kiddush. What would life look like without food? It would be funny, right? You would wake up in the morning. Yeah, I wouldn't drink. (laughs) I don't know what I would do with the coffee. What would we do without the coffee? Without even the celery juice. Without the... (laughs) Without the green juice, what would we, what would we do without the Coca Cola, without the orange juice, and without food? It's like, where do we go? But the same way God created the machine as He created seventy trillion cells working together, a hundred billion neurons working together in my brain, firing each other up in order to be able to function, and all the cells working in perfect synchronicity, He could have also created that those cells can function on their own. And the machine does well with its electricity, and we don't have to feed it with food, but he didn't make it that way. There's a symbiotic relationship between our own life and the food that we ingest and digest that become part of us. So the Alter Rebbe now explains this. What is it in food that really gives you vitality? It's the schmaltz. <laughs> It's the schmaltz. He says, it's always the meitzapia Every food has divine energy that comes from the mouth of God. Kumay Shekos of the Pasuk says in Ekev, and here is an unbelievable interpretation. Moshe Rabbeinu tells the Jewish people in Parshas Ekev in Deuteronomy, that God gave you the manna to teach you that a person doesn't just live on bread. A person lives based on the mouth of God. In other words, it's not just the bread that makes you live. God wants you to live. So if God gives, God can give you mana too, but Al-Tarebbe says it's something much deeper. Don't look at the bread and think it's just the physical bread that gives you life. It's Moitzapi Hashem. The bread is divine energy. The Moitzapi Hashem is also talking about the bread. It's the energy that comes from the mouth of God, metaphorically speaking, just like when we speak, our words come from our mouth. So the divine energy that is concretized in the physical universe is called God's speech. God's speech is a metaphor for the divine energy that becomes concretized in our world. That's what bread is. When you're looking at grain that grows from the earth, it's all a divine miracle. It's a divine experience. Don't take earth for granted. Don't take a stalk of grain for granted. Don't take a stalk of barley or spelt or oats or rye for granted. Don't take a peach or an apple or a kiwi or a grape or a cherry for granted. It's Maitzapi Hashem. The fact, you know, we, 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 we take all these things for granted. We take all these things for granted that an animal eats grass, a cow eats grass, and as a result of that grass, suddenly the cow can give us milk. And we have milk. The cow can provide us with meat. The cow can provide us with tremendous energy and plow our field. And then the cow can provide us with leather. And it's all from that grass. Because there's Moitzapi Hashem. Everything has divine energy in it. And that's what makes it tick. And that's what creates it. And that's what sustains it. So Moshe says it's not the Lechem. It's the Moitzapi Hashem in the Lechem. 
It's the divine energy in the lechem. So it's true. So why are you asking, the Alter Rebbe says, why am I asking why we need food? We do need the food. We need the godliness in the food. Got it. But A person also has divine energy. Why can't you live from the divine energy in yourself? Why do I need the divine energy in the bread? Or in the vegetable? Or in the fruit? Or in the legume? The answer is, Commission is by it's because the divine energy that's manifested in the food is higher and loftier than the divine energy that comes from the mouth of God that's invested in the person. In other words, the divine energy that exists in the daimim, in the inorganic matter, in the tzaymeach, in the vegetation, in the chai, in the animal, has something that is deeper, if you can mute yourself, guys, has something that's deeper than the divine energy that is invested in the person. So when Hashem said, let earth blossom, or let earth produce the living mammals, or let the water produce the fish, let the, let the fish be created. He created the system that we need all of these substances. Why? Because there's a certain divine light that exists in them that we don't have, and therefore we need these foods to replenish us. They allow us to be human. They allow our intelligence to develop. They allow our souls, our spiritual souls, to continue functioning in our bodies. Achal kolza. But nonetheless, But now we have the other, the opposite idea. The food fell down below in a process called the breaking of the vessels. And it's now ruled under the rulership, which we call klipas noiga, the translucent shell. And therefore, So instead of look, appearing as spiritual energy, it appears as very physical. It's a physical food. And furthermore, omegashem es ha'adam And it, it could be megashem, which means it could, it could desensitize and make a person much more coarse, the person who eats it. It lowers down my soul and makes my soul entangled by the material husk of the universe. Even the righteous person. The, pro- the Proverbs chapter 13 says, A tzaddik eats to satiate his soul. And those are meticulous words. The tzaddik eats focusing on satiating his soul with the soul of the food. has explained elsewhere, Even he would have been easier. Life could have been easier without the food. That's why Moshe on the mountain didn't eat for 40 days. Even though Moshe's eating was very, very deep and lofty and sublime, but it's still not like not eating because there is a density and a physical husk that the food now is encapsulated in, and therefore Moshe didn't eat on the mountain. Even the manna, it's defined in Tehillim chapter 78 as Lechem Abirim. Lechem Abirim means, Gemara says in Yuma, 
It's the food of the angels. Lechem Abirim means the food of the powerful. As the Talmud says, man is the food that sustains the angels. That's why it's called food from heaven, bread from heaven. Loi achal ish Moshe. didn't even eat the manna in heaven. The Gemara says in Brachas Nondalit, ish is Moshe. So it says, Lechem Abirim loi achal ish. Moshe wouldn't even eat that bread. Why? Because Moshe needed to open himself up to receive the Torah, and the Torah is higher than angels. The angels said, leave the Torah in heaven. They wanted the Torah. So Moshe Rabbeinu in the mountain for 40 days did not eat even manna, because manna man is spiritual food that the angels eat. But the Torah that Moshe wanted to receive transcends the angels. So therefore he didn't even eat the food of the angels, because even the manna is material relative to Torah. So the angels wanted the Torah because they wanted the Torah for them. Why? Because they felt that the Torah is higher than them. And to have that, Moshe didn't eat, even eat man. What, what is the Alter Rebbe teaching us here? Very briefly, Kabbalah explains that prior to our world, there was another world that God created. It's called Olam Hatayu. The Arizal says it's a spiritual universe it's called the world of chaos. In that world, the energy was much more intense. The containers were much smaller. But the energy, the Ur, the divine energy was much more intense. But there was a concept called the breaking of the vessels. When the heavy, when the light is too heavy, too intense, the vessels break. It's like sometimes you'll have a person who has tremendous energy and creativity, but has no containers, no kalim. It's called kalim. Everything in life to be successful is a marriage between two forces. Energy and vessel. Light and container. Er and kalim. You have the music and you have the musical notes that capture the music and allow you to write the music on paper. You have the idea of the art, the artistic idea in your brain, that's the air, and then you have actually concretizing it and giving it a space where it's expressed on canvas. The architect has this brilliant idea but then there's the implementation of it, which is all about drawings, and then you need a contractor to actually execute it and implement it. And that's where so many visions get stuck or get distorted. There is deviation from the original plan because it's very hard to create that perfect synthesis between light and, 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 and container, between energy and structure. People get married with this deep, these deep, powerful dreams of what our home is going to look like, what our relationship is going to look like. But then when push comes to shove and you have to implement it in daily life here, it's all about structure and kalim and schedule. And it's very easy to lose that ideal, pristine dream. So everything is a synthesis of light and vessels. In the original world, pre-our world, it was a world where the lights transcended the vessels, and the vessels broke. That's why he uses the word shvira sakelem. And what happened as a result of the vessels breaking is the light departed and the vessels were now broken, but they had all of these sparks of tremendous light. On the debris of that broken world, God created a new world, our world, called the world of tikkun, the world of healing, the world of integration. And here the vessels are greater than the light. 
So the Alter Rebbe says, the energy in Doimim Tzimeach and Chai is the energy of Toyu. It's a higher, more intense divine light. But it went through a breakdown. It went through a metamorphosis. And therefore, he says, the Michael, the food has energy that's deeper than human energy because our energy comes from Tikkun and their energy comes from Toyu. But that energy also went through a transformation, a breakdown. So now it's in the food. And when I'm looking at food, I don't see divinity. I see food. I see physical food. And the Alter Rebbe says, so this divine energy became incarcerated. It became enclosed and manifested. It assumes a very physical and dense incarnation. In fact, when you eat, I could become a glutton. Everybody knows when I eat, it's always a conflict. Because I can get pulled into the food, and instead of me sublimating the food, the food schleps me down. You know how it is, right? I have to explain it. I mean, I know how it is. We eat and we get caught up in the food. And suddenly, instead of me controlling the food, the food controls me. Sometimes I'm even busy binging. Sometimes I have a food addiction. Now I completely lose my humanity. I don't even know when I'm hungry or not. I just know that I have to eat and eat and eat. And when I'm stressed, I go to the pantry. And then you open the refrigerator. You know how people open the refrigerator and then they open it 10 minutes later? And I always say, it's amazing to see. I open the refrigerator 10 minutes later, I open it again. Why do I believe that within those 10 minutes, God actually replenished my refrigerator with mana? What happened in those 10 minutes? Do you think that the refrigerator now has new food? (laughs) But some of us are so desperate to numb our pain or numb our anxiety or fill our voids. And food is a major, major contribution for that. And it's an easy way of doing it, and it's fast, and it's accessible, especially in today's day and age, where there's so much food, Baruch Hashem. And very often, the less healthy the food is, right? (laughs) The more it pleases my palate and gives me instant gratification and gives me a fast high, even though an hour later I'm going to regret it. But what, what what is this all? And we know the healthiness of food is proportionate with the divine energy in it. Because the energy of food, the part of the food that gives us energy is the divinity in it. But it's completely concealed and eclipsed within physicality. And therefore, when I eat, it makes me more dense. And he says, even that Sadiq who eats appropriately, sensitively, respects the food and respects himself or herself, even then, you can't compare it to not eating. You can't. So Moshe on the mountain, even though Moshe's eating is the highest level of eating, he still wouldn't eat, and he wouldn't even eat man. Even the food of man, which is so fine, it's still not like not eating. So nisht essen kommt es nisht, as we say in Yiddish. So to get Torah, Moshe doesn't eat. So this is the paradox of the physical world. On one hand, the energy is higher, and that's why we need it. On the other hand, it came in to a very physical and dense incarnation, and it could schlep me down. It could make me more dense. It could even make me addicted. It can even make me entangled. And even if it doesn't make me addicted, it's something that brings, it can bring one down. It often can take me away from the truth of who I am, which is a derivative of divine infinity. So the Alter Rebbe continues, based on all of this, based on all of this, understanding what the physical world really is, the doimim tzamechai, and therefore why we need it in order to eat. And that's the power of the mitzvah, that the mitzvah, this flower, 
as you used as an offering becomes a reich nechayich, or this tefillin, or this tzitzis. And the question is, how can a physical substance trigger and access infinity? And the answer is, because everything in the physical world is infinite. But this gives us perspective why in the days of Avram, the Torah was not given yet. Back to the question he asked earlier. The answer is because in the days of Avraham, the density of the world was not refined to the point that the light of infinity can be accessed through the activity, through the action of the mitzvahs, which are mostly material actions from things that are under the rulership of Klipas Neiga, which means Klipas Neiga again is, the physical world is called a translucent shell. It's a husk that eclipses divinity, but it's a translucent husk because we can retrieve the godliness of it when we use the world in the appropriate way. But in the time of Avram Avinu, there was still this density that eclipsed the physical, the truth of the physical, and therefore, the world was not yet capable of experiencing Torah and mitzvahs, because what's the miracle of a mitzvah? The miracle of a mitzvah is that the physical parchment, the physical candle, the physical penny, nickel, dime, quarter, dollar, shekel, franc, euro, ruble, can become a vehicle, a conduit for divine infinity. That revolution, that ability to pierce through my material body, and my material food, the food that I'm eating, the coffee beans, the coffee beans that I grinded this morning, the milk that came from the cow that I put into the coffee, the hot water, to be able to say, Baruch atah Hashem alekeinu malachayilam, shahakoyl niya bidvarai. Everything came into his, through his words. Shahakoyl, everything, niya came into his bidvarai. The ability to be able to sit on your couch, on your chair, on your table. Use your mic or your computer or your phone or your Zoom. Gam Zoom Latoiva. And use it as a vehicle to access infinity. And the same is true within every animal and within every tree and bush and shrub. In the time of Avramavinu, he says, the physical was not yet refined enough to be able to pierce through that layer and access the infinity in the Gashmi. So, unbelievable words. The physical, material world was not yet open to be a receptacle, to be open to the light of infinity so that the title mitzvahs can be conferred on them. I can take the citrus, the physical asterisk, and it becomes something that's called a mitzvah, or the tefillin is called a mitzvah, or the myrtle branch is called a mitzvah, or the willow is called a mitzvah, or the candle, the wick and the flame and the wax is called a mitzvah, or the parchment is called a mitzvah, or the physical schach, the greeneries, the walls are called a mitzvah, or whatever else the mitzvah is involved in, the, the, the limbs and the organs of the human body. This is a process that can happen only after the Jewish people left from Egypt. Why? The prophet calls Egypt Kur HaBarzal. It's a crucible in which metal is refined. Kur HaBarzal, Kur, is like the hot furnace 
in which they would refine metals. They still refine metals. So the prophet Yirmiya, chapter 11, calls Mitzrayim Kur HaBarzal, a crucible of metal. Kemai Mitzraf Lekesef V'Kur Lezahov. In Proverbs chapter 17 and chapter 27, he speaks about Mitzraf Lekesef. Mitzraf Lekesef is the te- utensils that are used by a silversmith are called Mitzraf, and the utensils used by a goldsmith are called Kur. These are the utensils that are used to refine the silver and refine the gold because they have sediments, they have the dirt, the filth, the dregs inside of them, and that has to be melted away in the flames. So those utensils that are used are called a mitzraf for silver and a kur for gold. As it says in Proverbs 25, these are all expressions from Tanakh that the Rebbe uses in order to extract the sigim. Sigim are the the dregs, the sediments, the dirt, the filth are called sigim. You want to extract them from the silver in order to refine the metal that it should shine in its pristine glitter. Shakur hu amafrid hasigim. It's the crucible, it's this utensil that separates the sediments. You don't want that your silver or your gold should have any dregs in, mixed into it. V'kachu mitzrayim kur Egypt was a crucible. It was such a type of kur habarzal. It was a, a metal crucible. It refined the Jewish people. It, it metamorphosized them. And as a result of that, it allowed them to refine the world. It turned them into different people. Egypt was difficult. They went through a lot of difficult subjugation. The mortar and the bricks. Nobody ever wishes this on themselves. This is something nobody ever wishes on themselves or others. But when a person goes through difficult experiences, they become a crucible. Suddenly, we become more transcendent people. You know, I could live in my ego and in my comfort zone my whole life, and then there's a curveball that shakes you up. So some people dig in deeper and they become more isolated and more angry. And that's a pity because it's really there to open me up, to open us up. And that's the process we know as vulnerability. And pain creates vulnerability because pain reminds me that I'm mortal, I'm frail, I'm human, I'm sensitive. I'm not the, I don't own the world. Sometimes we think we own the world, you know, we're the little Napoleon in us, or the little Alexander the Great in us, or the little Genghis Khan in us, or the little Stalin in us. We sometimes think, you know, we control the world, we control everybody. And pain reminds us of our vulnerability. And it has that ability to be a crucible, to refine me, to be able to allow me to get rid of the stupidity, most importantly, the superficiality. Now, this is not something I ask for. Nobody says, oh, give me pain so I should get rid of my superficiality. We say every morning, nobody ever asks for any tests in life. Life is, life is complicated enough. But the fact is, when I do experience a curveball, 
when something is not going exactly the way I wanted it to go, when the trajectory of my life is not working out exactly, and I'm running the marathon, and somehow the path is not as straight as I thought it was, and I'm bumping into fences and stumbling blocks and challenges. I'm talking now about the mental anguish that some of us experience, so many of us experience, the anxiety, the stress, issues with myself, issues with my family, issues with my own brain, my own psyche, my own gut, my own kishkes. And struggles that we each have, how do we look at them? I could see them just as an invitation to get angry at the world and get angry at God and get angry at everybody. Okay, and I, I can't judge that. But what Alter Rebbe is teaching here is that every such curveball in life is an opportunity for me to shed another layer of falsehood and superficiality. And you know, we all know you sometimes meet people and there's a halo of light around them. And you know that they have been through experiences that simply turn them into such real, authentic, inspiring people. You know what I'm talking about? You look into somebody's eyes and they're just authentic. There's no cover-ups. There's no fake diplomacy. There's no fake news. There's no beating around the bush. There's no talking about everything that doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, sometimes you go to these events and conferences and everybody talks and talks and talks about everything that doesn't matter. Everything that doesn't touch anything real. It's like we live in this... <laughs> I'm not judging, I'm talking about myself too. We sometimes live in this superficial place and we caress each other superficially. You know, somebody sent me the other day, Dr. Tversky's yard site was last Shabbos, Dr. Abraham Tversky. So, you know, he dedicated his life to help addicts and to bring recovery awareness into the Jewish community. Rabbi Ram Yeshua Heschel Tversky. Rebshia Tversky, Dr. Abraham Tversky, a very famous psychiatrist. He passed last year. He's the composer of the song, at his funeral, he asked them not to eulogize him, but to sing this song. So they sang it at the funeral and at the burial. So one of his grandchildren wrote an article and he said that somebody asked his grandfather, do you practice what you preach? You always speak, speak about recovery. You know, do you really believe it? Do you really feel so close to these addicts in recovery? He says, absolutely. I'll tell you something. My lawyer is an addict in recovery. My accountant is an addict in recovery. My doctor is an addict in recovery. Even my barber is an addict in recovery. They're the only ones I trust because they work on themselves every single day. Because <laughs> they're the only ones I trust. <laughs> right? They work on themselves every day. You meet sometimes people, you see that they've been around the block and instead of isolating and getting angry, they opened up. They opened up. When I shed my layers of superficiality, that's the Alter Rebbe says, Mitzrayim broke through the husk of the universe. Not just the Jews went to Egypt. It metamorphosized the planet. It broke through the husk. I'm not thick. I'm not dense. There's somebody you can talk to. You know, you look into somebody's face and you see their soul. You see their light. You see their presence. They're present. They're real. They're authentic. Conversations are just different conversations. So the Alter Rebbe explains, Moiradik, that this was the concept of Mitzrayim. 
everything was transformed. Lius nifred haramin atoiv. The, the, the negativity, the evil gets separated. It gets extracted. I don't have time for this anymore. The Kotzker Rebbe once said, I don't want my Hasidim not to sin because they don't have temptation. People have temptation. Temptation is part of life. Makes the world go around. I want them not to sin because they shouldn't have time to sin. I have temptation. Well, where do you have time for superficiality? Where do I have time for? I don't have time for this. It's like, I'm busy. I'm busy. I'm busy living. I'm not busy dying. I'm busy living, I'm not busy dying. The expression in Tehillim, we say it, Shabbos, the actions of, of iniquity just separate. They lose it, they get dissolved. And the Altareb explains, This is fascinating now, how it works. When evil flexes its muscles and does all of its bad activities, it also perishes, it destroys itself. It's a fascinating idea. When goodness flexes its muscles, it builds itself. When evil flexes its muscles, and it does what it wants to do, it it, it perishes, it gets lost. The example for that is, certain things in life, you just do them, and there's nothing left to it. You see, there's nothing there. Because its entire substance was really superficial. There was nothing really there. So once I do it, I'm like, okay, been there, done it, next. <laughs> it's done. You see that there was nothing. You know, say it, do it, fine. <laughs> Dr. Rebbe says, the rat does it, and there's nothing there. Kamesha Kosov, the Pasuk says in Azinu, Chitzai Achala. So the Gemara says, Chitzai Kolom Veheinem Kolom. God says, I will finish my arrows on you. So Chazal say in Saita, my arrows will finish, you will never finish. So he says, what does this mean? Kamashal aluka, it's like a leech. In Yiddish they call it a, 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 a piafke, a bloodsucker. She sucks out your blood and she's dead. She sucks out your blood and there's nothing left. My arrows will finish because they don't have real energy. They make believe they have energy. So shoot them and there's nothing left. But you won't finish because you're not an arrow. You're real. You're authentic. So what does the leech do? What does the aluka do? What does this piafka, this bloodsucker do? It takes your blood and the moment it finishes, it dies from itself. You got the blood and now you're dead. There's nothing left. You got your blood. You got it. And what's left? You were alive just to suck my blood out. You sucked my blood out of your gut. Sometimes you see this. It's very sad. People yeah, who, who, who fall prey to their own superficiality and they become piafkas. I'm living through sucking your blood. So I suck your blood and what happens? There's nothing there. I die. Okay, you did it. You did it, Shai. You weren't really alive. I was busy living vicariously through you. I was living vicariously through you, by, by feeding off you, by, by, by abusing you, by oppressing you, by, by exploiting you, by manipulating you. Okay, it looks like you're alive, you're not alive. When you're alive, you don't exploit anybody else. You're, you're for real. If you're alive, you're connected to the source. Why are you exploiting? God doesn't exploit. Why are you exploiting? If you're not connected to the source, you have to exploit. Evil doesn't have connection. That's why it's evil. So I'm sucking your blood and then I die. Done. 
been there, done that. There's nothing less left. The bucket list is done. So the Alter Rebbe says, in Mitzrayim, that's what happened. The arrows of evil were shot out, and you know what? The ear went out. The ear, it's like the needle was put in the balloon, the ear went out, <coughs> and it happens in people's lives. It's like, okay, so now you're back to yourself. What are you left with? You can only be left with one thing. That is godliness. Emes, Pnimius. Vekashen nizdachichu Yisrael. When the Jews went through this refinement, nizdachich gamkin ha'olam v'gash the whole world was transformed. It's not just the Jews became refined. The material universe was now less dense. It was more receptive. It was more transparent. Because the Jewish people are at the vortex of the cosmos. We are the interlacing link between heaven and earth. We affect the world. As the verse says, the, the, the Kohelis, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, God placed the universe in their hearts. You want to change the world? Change your heart. What a powerful idea. You want to change the world? Change your heart. Open up your heart. You say, my heart. My heart is my own little heart. It's, yeah, my own little heart. But your heart is connected to the cosmos. I change my heart and I change your heart. And we change other hearts. And the whole world is affected. The Lubavitcher Rebbe once said it of Habreng, and it says when Mashiach comes, Isaiah chapter 11, the wolf will live with the lamb. How? And he said, I have inside my heart a wolf and a lamb. When I make peace between the wolf and the lamb inside my heart, the wolf and the lamb in the jungles will get the memo. They'll also make peace. But I have to make peace between the wolf and the lamb inside of me, between the souls inside of me. When we make peace between the wolf and the lamb inside our own system, inside our families, inside our communities, inside our world, the animals will get the memo. By osmosis, they'll all be affected. So when the Jewish people shed that husk of density, of superficiality, the planet has changed. And you know what happens? Now there could be the concept of a mitzvah. A mitzvah maisius, which means an action-oriented mitzvah that relates to my physical body and my physical universe, suddenly could be defined as a mitzvah. That through this physical interaction, you're not just doing something nice or ritualistically significant or culturally meaningful. You're actually breathing and living and manifesting infinity. Gamba achilas karbonas, when they ate the offerings, offering the meal, offering that comes from flour that grew in the grain, becomes a fire that creates an aroma for God. I, the patriarchs, also offered karbonas. This is fascinating. All the offerings before Matan Torah were only carbon oilus, never carbonas that you can eat. It's an unbelievable insight. All the offerings, take out Noyach. Noyach came out of the ark and he offered a lot of offerings from the kosher animals, but it was only oilus. An oilus is an offering that gets completely burnt on the altar but not shlomim or other offerings that part of it gets burnt and part of it you eat. That was not part of it. Why? 
So the Alter Rebbe says, and there was also no offerings from Tzaymeach, from the vegetative world. They didn't bring flour, they brought animals. In other words, they brought a higher form of life. They couldn't get it from vegetation. And even then, they burnt it up on the altar. What's the idea? The idea is as follows. In a way, it's easy to bring an oil. You know what an oil is? An oil is, I burn myself up for God. You know what's harder? What's harder is go back home and eat it. You see the difference? This is the nuanced idea here. An oila is much more spiritual, but in a way, it's much easier because we have moments we escape to heaven. I burn myself up for God. That they can do before Matan Torah, but bring it back home, eat it, integrate it, make it a meal, that the meal should be holy, the house should be holy, the bedroom, the kitchen, the dining room, the living room, the family room, the salon is also sacred. That's where the gashmi, the physical, could become integrated with the spiritual. That's the Chiddush of Matan Torah. This answers of some questions discussed in the holy books. For example, Why did Yaakov marry two sisters? Amram married his aunt. An uncle could marry a niece after the Torah was given. But a nephew doesn't marry an aunt. Amra married Yecheved. Yecheved was his aunt. Because Yecheved was a daughter of Levi, and Amram was a grandson of Levi, right? Amram was the son of Kahas, who was one of the sons of Levi. Yecheved was an aunt. So you could answer, it was before Peter was given. So Yaakov could marry two sisters. Today we're not allowed to marry two sisters. But Yaakov could marry two sisters. Amram could marry an aunt. But still, the Svarim asked, the Avais observed the whole Torah before it was given. At least on some level. Certainly also Arias, the forbidden relationships. The same is true Amram. He was the father of Moshe who gave the Torah. How is it that before the Torah was given, they did things that later would be forbidden? Now we understand the answer. And it's very, very interesting. A very interesting answer what Alter Rebbe is saying. You see... What's the concept of marrying two sisters? What's the concept of marrying an aunt? You have it on a biological level, but we also have it on a spiritual level. The Avais did the Torah spiritually, but till the Torah was given, before Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, there was a gulf between the spiritual Torah and the physical Torah. The world was not yet capable of manifesting the spiritual Torah in the physical world. So there was a gulf. So therefore, on a physical level, Yaakov could marry two sisters. On a physical level, Amram could marry his aunt. Even though on a spiritual level, Yaakov observed the Torah and he didn't marry two sisters, but the two sisters biologically and two sisters spiritually were in different universes completely. Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim created the ability for integration. And that's the key of life, integration, integration of the highest spiritual ideals within our bodies, within our systems, within our psyches. And that's what we search for. We don't want the separation. We don't want the fragmentation. We all have a divine part. We also have our physical body, that ability to, that ability to connect the two, that ability, that ability that the Gesha becomes a mitzvah, just as Egypt was the crucible that allowed for the giving of the Torah, 
He now brings it to our times. Our exile is the crucible that opens up the ability for Mashiach. Because everybody holds that when Mashiach comes, the mitzvahs are not going to be nullified. The Gemara brings an opinion that by Tchiyas HaMesim, mitzvahs betelis. When Mashiach comes, the mitzvahs are not nullified. The Prophet says the earth will be filled with divine awareness like water covers the sea. So the mitzvahs will penetrate the physicality in the most internalized and authentic way. So our exile, which when the Alter Rebbe said this, Maimir in 1805, Shruis 1805 has already has already continued for close to 1,800 years. Is it all about atonement for sins? The sins were atoned for. The sins were atoned for. You know, the famous example is you're in prison for a long sentence, but the closer you get to liberation, the easier it gets till they put you in a halfway house. With our gullahs, we see the opposite. So they went to Gullahs to atone for their sins, and in Gullahs, because of Gullahs, they do more sins, so they need more Gullahs to atone for the sins. Is it endless? Chas v'shalom. The Rebbe says as follows. Just like before Matan Torah, they went through Mitzrayim in order to open up the Jewish people in the world for Matan Torah, the whole Gullahs that we experienced is all a preparation for Mashiach. The ultimate Kabbalah Satira, the ultimate Matan Torah, where he says... The pnimius of Torah will come out. The pnimius of the world will come out. Rashi says that the ultimate depth of Torah and mitzvahs Mashiach is going to teach. In the beginning of the Song of Songs, we want a kiss of the mouth. Rashi says Mashiach is going to reveal to us the ultimate secrets of Torah. Then the world will be so refined that there's no gulf anymore. And that's what we're experiencing now as we get closer and closer to Geula. The husk of materialism gets pierced through and the oneness of the universe emerges more and more. Even in science and physics, it used to be when they studied the universe and they studied the planet, it looked like a fragmented place. With each generation and the progressive thought processes of science and physics, the multiplicity of our planet gets reduced into less and less numbers, even in terms of chemistry, all as a preparation to reveal the oneness. Because Mashiach brings out the refinement in the most pnimiistic, deep, deep, deep way that the entire universe is not just a place where you can do mitzvahs. That was the Chiddush of Matantayna. But the whole earth is filled with that type, that type of awareness. The awareness of absolute oneness. And he says, It's true also individually with every person. Any pain that a person goes through, it's It allows a person to be opened up, to be more refined. And it transforms completely the mitzvahs that the person does. It repairs me. It opens me up, allowing me to become subsumed in the light of infinity. Because our mitzvahs we do with a physical body, we do in physical things. But again, the physical world is a husk. 
so that the mitzvah should be able to go up and become completely divine. When the outer superficiality is challenged, when I'm experiencing those curveballs in life, I have to understand it's an opportunity to shed all those layers that eclipse the truth and it allows me, it allows my mitzvahs to become completely refined and subsumed in my own truth. You become one with your own ultimate truth, which is the light of infinity. And that's why the Torah couldn't be given by the time of Avram Avinu. Because the Chiddush of Torah is the transformation of my body and the physical world that happened by Matan Torah, and the ultimate level happens by Mashiach. And uh, the Al-Tirebbe then goes on now, it goes back to the Shoifer that he began earlier, which we're, we're going to learn by Hashem in the, next, in the next class. Let me take some questions. We're going to continue this class Thursday morning, finish the Mimer with God's help, Lee Neder. And remember, tomorrow we have our woman's class 1245, Tuesday 1245. It's live in person, 24 Shea Road. All the women and girls are invited. And it's also live streamed on the yeshiva.net. Question. You speak about nachas. So you're saying that nachas is actually initiated by the parent for the child as opposed of the child to the parent. That's what I was saying. (laughs) Yes. That's what I was saying. So when I eat, I shouldn't be thinking that I'm just eating physical food. I'm consuming spiritual divine energy through the material foods. Is that correct? And that everybody gives and takes in the ecosystem because there's this divine significance in all. Yes, you got it. How many people know the difference between a protein and an amino acid? Thank you, Rebbe Maybe you'll explain to us the difference between protein and amino acid, but it's something very important to know to understand God's world. And recently they discovered that it's lightning that allows the nitrogen to mix with the oxygen and be absorbed in the soil so that we can be able to get the amino acid which our cells desperately need to develop and survive. Question. Statement. Rabbi Tversky was one of the rabbis I listened to and I got inspired in order to get involved in Judaism. He was a truly inspirational rabbi as he was a psychiatrist. Was Moshe Rabbeinu, yes, true, I had the privilege of knowing him, yeah. Was Moshe Rabbeinu thinking that because the Jews went through Mitzrayim, they were ready for the ultimate Geula, really? And why weren't they? It could be, it could be, it's a good question, we have to think about that. Mosquitoes do the same, they drink the blood and then they die. Yeah, maybe he's referring to a mosquito as well. Yeah, when you're not connected to Hashem, you exploit people. That's a beautiful, beautiful comment. Yes, it's very true. Because it doesn't mean, you have people who are wonderful people, they're not exploitative, but it means that if I'm exploiting, it means I'm not connected to the source. Change the world by changing the heart inside. That is very profound, Should we thank God for the sins of others because they give us an opportunity to transcend them and get closer? Well, I wouldn't put it that way, but when we do experience a challenge inside of us or outside of us, it's always an opportunity for deeper growth.
That's what I would say. Okay, my dearest friends, let's see what's happening on the website here. I see a lot of comments. Thank you, everybody, for your delicious comments, beautiful comments. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.